0: The sounds of today's RTE newsroom, with its hundred journalists constantly monitoring, analysing and relaying the news against the chatter of the international teleprinters.
1: They are split between uh, people who actively intake news and then people who who process news for for broadcast. News editor Rory O'Connor. Included in that figure are uh, correspondents... That we have in Ireland, the Cork uh, correspondent, the Western correspondent. We have uh, a staff of about six, uh, six reporters in, uh, in the north of Ireland, in Belfast. The staff there has been expanded since the trouble started in 1969, 68. Uh, We have two men in London and we have uh, an EEC correspondent or a European correspondent in Brussels. Um, uh, Along with that, of course, our news intake process is supplemented by foreign news
0: agencies. Diplomatic correspondent Liam Hurricane.
2: My main responsibility is to try to cover those foreign stories that have to be covered by RTE, the events that are so big that you can't escape them, even if they are at the other side of the world.
1: Uh, Along with that, of course, our news intake process is supplemented by uh, foreign news agencies. We use uh, Reuters and uh, United Press International. Uh, Reuters is uh, an agency formed by a a consortium of uh, newspaper groups in Britain. It is uh, British-orientated to some degree. Um, uh, The other agency that we use is United Press International, which is an American news agency. And again, one as one might expect, one would have to look out for some Americans standing in there in their coverage. While both Reuters and UPI provide quite a good service, uh, it is a
2: fact that they are uh, firmly based in the Anglo-American system of values and and outlook, and for example we don't have AFP, the main French agency, which would give a different perspective nor do we have any of the outright foreign uh, continental or eastern European agencies so that our sources are somewhat selective and qualified. One has to develop a degree of scepticism, but one is always in, in danger of falling for an interpretation that really doesn't square with the facts. Uh, The best thing to do,
0: I suppose, is to try once in a while to visit the countries that keep recurring in the bulletins. Liam Haurican's need for a third international news agency is a far, far cry from 1926, when 2RN first came on the air and first began to broadcast news.
3: Pretty haphazard.
0: Nancy Bergen was there in 1926 at a time when news occupied a minor place in the priorities of the new and impoverished station.
3: And we had to rely on casual staff, mostly from the newspapers, because there weren't many news bulletins then. We didn't start until the evening, I think, as far as I remember. We only had an evening programme. We had no midday until later on.
0: In fact, in those early years, news was often treated as merely a supplement to the market and weather reports.
3: Well, I know we used to get the weather forecasts, for instance, by telegram. I don't know where from now, and I'm not very clear on that. Those used to come in by telegram. We had in our own meteorological office at that time, for one thing, and various other... Uh, for instance, down the country, we'd have some be journalists that sent in any items from down there, the various country parts.
0: But even with these small resources, the station did have its occasional scoop. The announcement from 2RN that Lindbergh's plane had been sighted over Ireland was the first the world heard of him since he left New York from Paris on his record making solo flight. I mean the news was fresh.
3: It'd get past the country that hadn't even got a paper, may not have got a paper the next day.
0: And in fact it was somebody in one of those country parts who alerted 2 RN to this news. There was too in those years the occasional political scare. After the June election of 1927, two rn broadcast an item stating that the Commonwealth Party, which had lost some seats, would not now form a government, either alone or in coalition. This was sensational. It was also without substance. It was merely the personal view of the Minister for Posts and Telegraphs, J.J. Walsh, who was shortly to leave politics for good. This particular controversy didn't last very long mainly because the politicians didn't yet take very seriously radio's news function.
3: Well, with we no newsroom as such, I mean, everything was in the general office. And once we closed down at half past five, or five, whatever the case might be, we had to... Uh, they took over then into did the news then in that office. There were stacks of newspapers round, down round the walls where the newsmen used to sit, and... Um, It was. It looked chaotic, but it really wasn't. I mean, everything went on smoothly and the news got out on time. In
0: 1927 came the opening of the Cork studios, but this didn't mean any extension of the news services. In fact, the first broadcast from Cork was the sound of a milk-churn capsizing when a pony and cart fell outside the studios. By 1929, the number of licences for radio sets hadn't reached the 30,000 mark. Reception was erratic, and the quality was often poor. Yet, among the converted, there was an often fanatical interest.
4: When the news got around and said that the parish priest had his radio working well, you hoped that you were a friend of his, that you could sit in and listen for a half hour to whatever was going on.
0: And this increasing impact was being reflected in the growing interest of the politicians. The time was fast approaching when everybody felt qualified to be a radio critic, and why not? The criticism of radio news in those days was frequent and varied. Charges of bias came from all sources. In 1934, the Republican Congress newspaper accused Radio Ern of being anti worker in its reporting of a strike. The same year, the opposition was outraged by the statement in a news bulletin that Mr. de Valera tore to shreds the arguments of the opposition in his speech at the end of the debate. Radio Ern later apologised for this lapse. And there was the question of censorship. For example, in 1935, Senator O'Farrell claimed that Radio Aaron had refused to broadcast reports of disturbances in Dublin on St Patrick's Day, even though these incidents had been reported by the BBC. Indeed, the BBC was often used as a yardstick against which Radio Aaron's performance was measured, and occasionally, as in this case, as a stick with which to beat Radio Aaron. As often as not, the cause of complaint was the range and the quality of the news. Sean Lamass, for example, in 1929 attacked 2RN in the Doyle, saying that its news consisted mainly of items from the evening papers and that the broadcasting authorities were fighting shy of controversy. Indeed, there were those who felt that a national radio station shouldn't report political news. James Dillon, for example, argued in 1936 that there should be no discussion of local politics on radio. In 1936 also, a Fine Gael deputy saw political bias in the fact that the victory of Mr Cosgrave's bull at an agricultural show had not been reported by Radio Warren. Now, if that had been Mr De Valera's bull... This growing interest of the politicians was not, however, accompanied by any greater financial generosity from the politicians. Lona Bryn.
4: Anyhow, you, you could say that Irish broadcasting, uh, which could do nothing without plenty of money spent its early years, first of all, under the worst possible auspices.
0: And an insight into the limitations under which the news service operated can be seen from a dull reply of the Minister for Post and Telegraphs, Gerald Boland, in 1934. The sources for Radio Air News were, he said, the Dublin News Correspondent, the Cork News Correspondent, the Department of Agriculture, the Dublin Stock Exchange, Salford Cattle Market and Foreign Wireless News. But limited as this service was... One Irish politician was discovering the possibilities of radio.
5: A really yielshit. Daniim di benihim ae persha. A red ween got dana so ye are they down in no again. shame To me, a ages, mask
0: de Valera, like his contemporary Stanley Baldwin in Britain and Franklin Roosevelt in the US, was discovering the medium and learning how to use it and using radio to make news. That speech was broadcast on St. Patrick's Day 1937 and relayed via London by landline to the US.
5: I am happy that it is again my privilege to convey Air's greetings to our scattered children.
0: Not surprisingly, this departure was strongly attacked by the opposition, who accused the government of manipulating Radio Erin for propaganda and party purposes a foretaste of things to come.
6: Weather will be mainly fair, but there will be local coastal fog and drizzle in the west and north. It will continue rather warm in all districts. Outlook for Saturday, similar. By
0: 1939, things were changing. At home, the number of licences had passed the 150,000 mark. Radio Erin had established its place in Irish life and was taking on a character of its own. More important, as war approached... So did the importance of radio, and war wasn't far away in June of 1939. News announcer, Bernadette Plunkett.
6: The chief items of tonight's news are British relations with Germany, French flying boat leaves foins, drastic measures in Bohemia, Mr. Sean Russell released on bail, annual meeting of medical union, death of Englishmen in Shanghai, statement on lost submarines, British royalty in United States, Duce entertains Spanish delegation, hillside fires in Ireland, International Labour Conference opens, sports results, and the Dublin cattle market report. British relations with Germany. Two statements on Britain's relations with Germany were made today. In the House of Commons, Mr. Chamberlain denied suggestions that the government were attempting to destroy German trade. In the House of Lords, the Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, spoke during a debate on foreign affairs and discussed the matter at some length. The rarely dangerous element in the situation, said Lord Halifax, was that the German people as a whole might drift to the conclusion that Britain had abandoned her desire to reach an
0: understanding... But if news was now more important, if the sense of danger was greater... The facilities for news programmes hadn't advanced very much since 1926. Bernadette Plunkett remembers.
7: Well, there were two people in the newsroom. There was Mr Lawler, who was our news editor. I think his name was Ned. I always called him Mr Lawler because I was only very young at that stage. And his uh, assistant was Eddie Cusack. Eddie actually typed the news. They used. There was a radio in the room and they... Literally took a lot of the news from the BBC news bulletins, because, of course, I doubt if we had uh, any affiliation with the big news sources, Reuters, Associated Press, and so on. We did quote them, whether with permission from the BBC or by courtesy of them, or whether we had the affiliation, I couldn't really tell you. But they used the radio as a source, they used newspapers as a source, and indeed our news bulletins were timed to allow that. We were always waiting for the evening herald, the late one, to come in to get bits of news from it in the evening, and the daily papers then were used for the earlier bulletins.
5: I am speaking to you tonight because I thought you would expect me to. I have been too busy to prepare any corrected manuscript so I must speak to you from notes. I know you will understand. You know from the news bulletins to which you have been listening that the great European powers are again at war.
3: And I can remember Dr Kiernan saying now the time the 39, the actual declaration of war was treated calmly not to make a, a sort of an issue out of it, just as a piece of news.
0: But Ireland was neutral, and this meant that Radio Éireann, especially Radio Éireann, had to be neutral, had to avoid offending either side or giving information to either side. This meant curtailment and dullness. It meant that all programmes had to be scripted in advance. It meant that sports commentators couldn't mention the weather, lest it give information to the belligerents. And it meant, too, that no weather forecasts were broadcast for the duration of the war.
5: Noting the march of events, your government decided its policy early last spring and announced its decision to you and to the world. We resolved that the aim of our policy would be to keep our people out of the war.
7: The news bulletin was checked each evening by Frank Gallagher. And if he were at home, if he had to leave the studio earlier for any reason and was gone home to his home in Sutton, we would read it to him over the telephone. Because, of course, this was all very important war news and uh, obviously had to be censored. He was head of the Government Information Bureau and it was his responsibility.
5: As I said in the Doyle, with our history, with our experience of the last war, and with the part of our country still unjustly severed from us, we felt that no other decision and no other policy was possible.
7: We had all the British communiques, but whenever we got German communiques from the German High Command, you know, through the newspapers or any other way, we, we had to give them too. It was important to keep a balance because of our neutrality. We had to be sure to respect that.
8: It also
4: came that yesterday... The fleet air arm shot down two German planes which had attacked British warships returning from their bombardment of Stavanger. Three other German planes were damaged. A German communique today claims that one British cruiser was sunk by German bombing planes. Four direct hits were said to have been gained on heavy and light cruisers. An official statement issued in Berlin tonight Denied that any aerodrome exists in the Norwegian port of Trondheim and also denied the suggestion that the machines of the British
9: Air Force attacked an airport there. It takes, however...
0: In this situation, the government relied more and more on Radio Aaron to get over its point of view on important matters. Sometimes Mr de Valera or senior ministers would broadcast. Sometimes their statements were read by the announcers in full as part of the news bulletin. It may be added that, whatever about the quality of Mr de Valera's statements, brevity was not a
7: characteristic feature. It took me 45 minutes to read. Funnily enough, at that time, I had heard that Mr de Valera was anti-feminist. Later, he told me this was not so. But at the time, I was under the impression, it had been given me by one of my colleagues, that he did not like his statements being read by a woman. So here was I in sole command of the studio with the most important statement to read and feeling very much an outraged woman. A little bit liberationist at that stage. (laughs) So I read the news bulletin and I thought, now why should I let this pass? And I went into the engineers and I said, how do I get in touch with the Taoiseach? And they said, you don't. I said, well, I want to. And they said, well, you'd better just ring the exchange, because he doesn't have a phone number, a listed phone number. So I rang the exchange, and I said, could I speak to the Taoiseach, please? And they said, well, who are you, and what's your business? I said, I was Bernadette Plunkett. I had just read his statement on the radio news, and uh, I wanted to be sure he was satisfied. So they said, hold on. And presently I heard, this is the Taoiseach speaking and my knees turned to water. Literally, I shook. I was never so upset at, at my own audacity. However, I did say to him, "'Knowing how you feel about woman and answers, "'I wonder if you were satisfied with my reading of your statement?' "'Well, I won't tell you what he said, "'but he was satisfied, and he was utterly charming about it. "'Incidentally, I must say that some weeks later,' After making an important statement, this time to the Senate, I was called into the engineer's room and told there was someone on the telephone for me. And I said, who is it? And they said, a man. He didn't say who he was. So I said, oh, good, took up the telephone and again heard, this is the Taoiseach speaking. Now, wasn't that wonderful of him? This time he took the initiative and telephoned me to thank me for my work.
5: We've also decided... On a certain reorganization of ministerial work. Mr. Lamas will assume the responsibility for supplies and the coordination of economic effort. Mr. Aiken will take over the coordination of defensive measures, civil and military. Mr. Derrick will go into the department and take charge of industry and commerce and take charge of it. Mr. Spainer will take over charge of the army and the Ministry of Defence. The Taoiseach will carry on the functions both of Minister for Local Governance Minister for Education.
0: But even if the country was surrounded by war and living through an emergency, local politics went on much as before. And now, more and more, the opposition politicians complained of Radio Aarons' bias against them. The government claimed national interest, but not always convincingly.
7: I remember once commenting... I read a news bulletin, several pages long, stuff from the Doyle, you know, various statements by various Doyle members, and I commented that James Dillon got about an inch and a half, whereas the government people had all the rest. I thought that was a little wasted at the time, and I said so. Actually, I was invited out to dinner one night, and... Among the guests, in fact, the only other guests were James Dillon and his wife, and I had never met him before. Now, at this, this is years after I'd finished as an announcer, because James was then minister, his party was in power. But I was a very young woman, expecting my first baby, and this imposing gentleman, twiddling his monocle, said to me, Ah, I've hated you for years! I was shook. I don't mind telling you. But I smiled and said, what did I do to deserve that? And he said, when you were on the radio, you made that man sound like the guardian angel of his people, embracing them with his protective arms. (laughs) I never knew I had done such wonderful work for Mr. De Valera. I wasn't even a supporter of his.
0: (laughs) The war and the challenges of reporting it was to have a very different effect on the sister stations of the BBC and Radio Erin, stations which began their life at virtually the same time. The war liberated the BBC, giving it a range, a scope, an opportunity it never had before. It meant new names, new techniques, new achievements.
10: the BBC, because of the possibility of invasion, announcers, instead of remaining as unknown voices, were to identify themselves as real people. Here is the midnight news, and this is Alvar Liddell reading it. Up to 10 o'clock, 175 German aircraft had been destroyed in today's raids over this country. Today was the most costly for the German Air Force for nearly a month.
0: Sounds of news actuality, of the news as it happened, like that wartime raid on London, now became a regular part of radio news reporting. And there were new men, reporters like Richard Dimbleby, men who were to influence, indeed create, a whole new style, a more immediate, more personal style.
2: The British, Canadian and American troops who landed on the coast of France, north of the lovely town of Caen, in broad daylight this morning, are already several miles inland. On a front sufficiently broad to
1: be more than a bridgehead.
11: This is Air Commodore Helmore calling and talking to you in midair from a Mitchell bomber.
5: This is Invasion Day. It's just before dawn, and we're on our way over to the coast of France to bomb an important
11: bridge behind the invasion beaches.
5: The most likely way to come near to meeting our requirements is to get all former producers of turf ..to double their output. The greater part of our output in the past was by individual householders... ..who produced for themselves by their own family labour. If all such producers were this year to make two cuttings... one to supply themselves and an equal cutting for sale... ..it would go far to meet our needs.
0: Radio Erin did attempt one important technical development during the war the experiment with a shortwave station. Shortwave, of course, meaning long-distance broadcasting. Sometime during 1940, and for a period of three months, this service came on the air each morning from three until half three and was aimed towards America.
2: Radio Aaron, Asia Radio Aaron. Ireland calling, this is Ireland calling. We commence our programme tonight with a Robert emmett Cayley octet playing three set dances, my... Miss Forbes' Farewell, My Love is But a Lassie Yet, and Charlie's Welcome. Following that, Agnes O'Kelly will sing two songs, The Ninepenny Fiddle and The Shortcut to the Rosses. Our news review today in Ireland will then be given and will be followed by further musical items of which details will be given later. there be blue.
4: you wait and see there'll be
11: love and laughter and
0: peace ever after
11: tomorrow when the world
0: is free
2: this is london calling
4: here is a news flash the german radio has just announced that Hitler is
2: dead.
11: And Jimmy will go to sleep In his own little room again be blue
10: The German armed forces in Italy have surrendered unconditionally to Field Marshal Alexander.
11: Tomorrow
6: Just you wait
0: Broadcasting and Radio Erin had played an important part in Ireland's wartime survival. But if it had, the new service of broadcasting hadn't come well out of the emergency. Now, on top of the existing civil service caution, it had an overlay of official censorship. News coverage, in spite of the drama and the importance of the previous six years, was still primitive, as Michael Lawler found when he came in as news editor in late 1945,
8: well, of course uh, there was practically uh, no professional staff. Um, he had been a professional editor, but he was left very much on his own. But when I came in, we immediately recru- uh, recruited two reporters. We had also the assistance of a sub-editor and uh, some casual assistants, and of course uh, the assistant news editor.
0: And now, 20 years after the foundation of Radio EARN, what now were its sources of news? Uh, very largely by uh,
8: listening in to various news broadcasts, largely the um, uh, BBC and a certain uh, other broadcasts, international broadcasts which are transmitting news from over, over various parts of the world. It was possible to pick up these... But they were rather uncertain, and I remember when I came in witnessing what I thought was rather uh, terrifying operation, and that was that there was a, a BBC bulletin at one thirty, and an unfortunate note taker had to try- take that at one thirty for the one forty news bulletin, and ha- have it typed. Within the 10 minutes. It was an extremely difficult op- and extremely unsatisfactory operation. But uh, that was for the purpose, of, of course, keeping the news up to date.
0: Soon there were some improvements, some moves towards a better service.
8: We did appoint a, a, a chain of about something like 150 uh, news correspondents around the country.
0: Of course, these part time correspondents, known in the trade as stringers, were not staff. They were only paid as per contribution used
8: on the same lines as uh, newspapers do. We had the, to, and we did have some assistance from the Cork Examiner, which acted as an agency. But uh, at this stage, it was extremely limited. It was very hard to keep uh, track of events throughout the country. Undoubtedly,
0: but as was by now traditional in radio, Warren, it was problems of finance which really hampered any proper development of the new service. Uh,
8: I remember on one occasion um, the uh, department official practically uh, questioned the value of the new service. And I think prior to my coming in, I uh, I was told that when it was proposed first to set up the new service, uh, the Department of Finance was asked to appoint one man for the whole operation uh, to do reporting, sub-editing and everything else. That, And um, the uh, Department's reply was, well, they would consider the matter, but obviously one man couldn't be fully occupied in covering the news of the whole country and that he would have to take on the job of talks officer... And quite a number of other jobs were suggested in order to fill in his time. That gives an idea of the, uh, uh, their assessment of the uh, problems
0: of collecting news. Advertisement in the Irish Independent, March 1945. Civil Service Commission. Positions vacant. Reporters, two. Established and pensionable. Salary scale, man £250, rising by £10 to £350 a year plus bonus. Woman, £190, rising by £7.10 to £250 a year, plus bonus. Age limit, 21 to 45 years, on 1st of March 1945. Well, these two positions were filled, and that was an improvement. Not dramatic, but an improvement. And the following year, Red EARN was able to subscribe to the international news agency of Reuter. That really was an improvement. Now it would have its own international news source instead of lifting news and not paying for it from other sources. Irish Times, 16th of August 1948.
4: World news received in three minutes. Progressive improvements in the Radio Era news service were mentioned by Mr M. J. Lawler, the radio news editor, in a talk last night. A foreign news service had been introduced, he said, giving reports of world affairs direct from the source. Special descriptive writers had been appointed, qualified reporters, recruited and correspondents allotted to provincial centres. News of important events was received within three minutes, regardless of the country from
0: which it originated. A better service, and better still, post-war censorship began to be relaxed.
8: For the first time, uh, we were able to um, have a live broadcasts broadcast from outside the country. This had been considered in a wildly extravagant expense up to this. But with the change of government, we were able to get a sanction because they were anxious that their talks in London uh, should get maximum publicity.
0: The Anglo-Irish trade talks of 1948. Michael Lawler. To a certain extent, we
8: tricked them into, you know, doing things. Evening Herald,
4: 31st of March, 1949. Criticism of news service and a reply. Last summer, the trade pact with England was signed in London at 27 and a half minutes past six one evening. The full report was included in the Radio and 6.30 news. It would be hard to find fault with a service like that.
8: We were able to put up um, a a proposition for the recruitment of two further uh, news uh, news broadcasters. That is, um, men who are actually to collect news and speak it themselves. Uh, the first of
0: these were PPR O'Reilly. And for a while, Brian Dernan and later John Ross.
2: On May the 1st... A 100,000 people filled O'Connell Street for the greatest mass meeting for many years. We, on the platform by the Parnell Monument, couldn't see the paving stones up to a short distance from O'Connell Bridge. Such was the mass of people, dotted through the crowd with the symbols or banners of church organisations and labour organisations too. Today is May Day, sometimes called Labour Day, and the presence of representatives of Irish trade unions in the procession and on the platform has stamped this meeting as an answer by Irish Labour in the name of Christianity to the imprisonment of a primate of the Christian Church in the name of Labour.
11: Today, one of the first great public actions of your newfound freedom here is to show your sympathy and to protest against the cruel persecutions of those who have not yet found their freedom. Today I come from those from, from, from those who once you called the stranger. I come today not to try to light a penny candle from a star, but I come today with others to light by God's grace and with Mary's help such a flame of fire which shall sweep the hosts of Satan back across the world to the hell from which they came
2: spoke Mr. Harvey of the Association of Our Lady of Fatima. Other speakers represented Labour, Education and Industry, while the Lord Mayor, Councillor Breen, represented the City of Dublin. Frontier Sofahi, Kyongkola Dol read the resolution, and Senator Miss Pierce recited with the hundred thousand a decade of the Rosary.
10: As the year ends, the Cardinal Primate of Hungary still carries his cross.
0: And
2: with him, millions of Christians
0: in Eastern Europe. And of course, the name in the case of Cardinal Vincenti was to crop up over and over again in the news bulletins of the 1950s. But still, in 1949, the descriptive newswriters were bringing their new and distinctive style to bear on a major domestic event. It was midnight in Dublin. Midnight in Dublin. It is Easter Monday, 1949.
2: From this minute, the Irish state severed its last constitutional link with the Crown of Great Britain, and the Army Band fanfars in the day when the Republic of Ireland receives its recognition from the nations of the world. And everybody in Dublin wants
0: to be here. The Declaration of Republic, 1949. Outside recordings in the 1940s were still on disc, as in this coverage of Irish reaction to the Ireland Act passed by the Westminster Parliament after the Declaration of the Republic.
10: You have carved up our country, said Mr de Valera,
4: and you have carved out a portion in which you have assured a continuing majority. You have set us an impossible task.
10: Reaction in Ireland was spontaneous. The government and our made a formal protest Public opinion throughout the country was aroused and the national protest culminated in the memorable mass meeting in O'Connell Street on the night of Friday, May the 13th. Standing on a great platform
2: by the Parnell Monument, the tea shop, Mr. Costello addressed the great mass of people.
11: We will speak tonight with the voice of the Irish nation at home and the voice of our spiritual empire abroad, demanding the withdrawal of this bill which is an affront to the Irish people and the Irish nation. For 29 years, the partition of our country has tortured the soul, afflicted the spirit, and crippled the energies of the Irish people. During those 29 years every effort has been made to put an end to that wrong of partition. Every method has been tried and the friendship has been held out to those people who are hanging on to their privileges and to their class for whose benefit this portion of our country was created. And when three members of the Northern Parliament rose to speak Enthusiasm could hardly be contained.
2: There was Senator Lennon, Malachi Conlon and Eamon McAteer.
10: Brother Irish, we have come here tonight seeking a message of encouragement and thank God we have found it.
0: But not everything was political. There were other events which lent themselves to the new technology and demonstrated the immediacy of radio, as, for example, in this coverage by John Ross, of a plane crash off the Aran Islands in
2: 1949. On the quay, a row of ambulances is drawn up. Down on the Stahlberg's deck, the jam is getting thicker as a crowd moves on board. County nurses, Red Cross, Army, Knights of Malta, customs and airline men, uniforms all over the place. I can see two bottles going from hand to hand over the heads of the crowd, whiskey and brandy. A Red Cross nurse on the key steps opens a big paper bag and begins to scatter packets of cigarettes down onto the deck. The liquor is passing round. A lot of the Italians shake their heads when the glasses are offered. An interview with one of the rescued men followed. Now here is Domenico Piccone,
1: one of the survivors.
2: We We are very happy to have been saved. It was a terrible experience. We were in the water for an hour. We had given up hope of being resigured.
0: On the spot reporting, greater scope and flexibility, improvements in technology, more manpower, and perhaps too more contact with the outer, and especially the American world, were bringing about a new, more self-confident, more assertive style of news presentation. The 1950s. Radio Erin now had his first tape recorder. It had cost a thousand pounds. And what they herald on many
10: fronts are mighty revolutions, greater than the industrial one, more spectacular than the Renaissance, perhaps as far reaching as the birth of the European intellect many centuries ago in its cradle of Athens. That is the importance of the ten years we are now waking. That's how they'll be remembered as the years when the lights were first seen in the sky and the footsteps were heard, and out of the mists came the first shadowy signs of the strange shape of things to come. Dawn of the Space Age. The Union of Europe in the common market and the European Free Trade Agreement making of it economically and perhaps politically for the future a new continent. A promise of unlimited mechanical power for industry and transport by means of atomic energy. The first signs that modern technology is on the way to dominate and change man's way of life. The coming of age of automation and the development of the electronic brain by which the machine replaces not only the hands but also the mind of man and can even imitate his voice as well.
0: But if radio was now covering more events and extending its range, it still fought shy of controversy especially local political controversy. The Battle of Boltinglass, which involved the transfer of a sub-post office, had been reported all over the world, yet it had been virtually ignored by Radio Arran. Why? Was it because the whole episode was an embarrassment to the Minister for Posts and Telegraphs, the Minister responsible for Radio Arran, James Everett? Well, the Irish Times thought so. It said in an article that the whole episode was a glaring instance of suppression of information and it went on that this was not isolated. The paper spoke of pressures being brought to bear on Radio Arran when political or sensitive events were to be reported. These pressures sometimes worked, sometimes not, but certainly they existed, as in this case, concerning an incident in a college and the subsequent death of a pupil, Michael Lawler.
8: I had a good deal of sympathy with the college in concern, and they pressed me very hard to exclude it but I felt that it would be wrong to do so, and we broadcast it. And to my surprise, apparently they succeeded with the papers, with some of them anyway, I can't remember with all, but I think it was all, and uh, I think we were the only uh, medium to broadcast it. And I may say that uh, there was absolutely no reaction, no attempt to uh, further pressurise us beyond the original request
0: but it was mainly in the political field that radio fought shy of controversy, sought shy of upsetting those in power, of getting behind the headlines. Background news, searching interviews were still a long way off.
11: Here at Ballyoan will be a children's hospital unit. In itself, merely one part of a vast healing organisation. Playing. A...
0: Dr Noel Brown, then a young Minister for Health, Announcing his mother and child scheme and setting off a train of events which was to bring down the first inter-party government.
10: But 1950 will be remembered chiefly as a holy year, a year that had already begun with the sound of the hammer of Pope Pius XII striking upon a door in St. Peter's. The Holy Father's voice proclaiming the Holy Year brought millions to the seat of Christendom in Rome upon a pilgrimage the like of which history has never recorded, even in the Middle Ages. A universal hosting of
2: mankind, which the news editor's diary at year's end described like this. Pilgrims in their thousands went by land, sea and air on the regular routes, but many went hard and unexpected ways, using all forms of strange transport, from a penny-farthing bicycle to a tub, and a Roman chariot. That is the literal truth. His grandfather's penny-farthing bike was ridden to Rome by a 29-year-old Liverpool man. The French philosopher Jean Tichel walked to Rome, pulling a tub on wheels in which he slept by night. Another pilgrim drove an ancient Roman chariot from Vincenza in the north of Italy. Twelve Spanish students paddled 550 miles across the Mediterranean in three cockle-shell canoes. And among the many invalids was a man who travelled from Paris in a hand-propelled bath chair.
0: Though ecclesiastical events were a dominant input, the developing resources of the newsroom and its developing technology brought other international news to Irish listeners.
4: It is reported from India today that members of the British expedition have reached the summit of Mount Everest. May
10: 1953. On his return to England, we heard Hillary describe the final moments of the greatest climb in history... Um, the snow, the actual ridge was composed of snow with cornices or uh, overhanging ice on the right and a very steep uh, rock bluff on the left. However, by keeping halfway down the steep snow slope and cutting steps along it, we um, got along OK and
2: uh, until we reached a rather difficult rock step about a third of the way along.
0: And if, in someone's phrase, Ireland was taking her place among the nations. And
10: Ireland's voice before the General Assembly of the United Nations the Minister for External Affairs, Mr. Liam Cosgrave.
2: True users of the canal are the ordinary men and women everywhere who buy the tea or burn the oil that passes through the canal. Life will be a little harder for these people as long as the canal is blocked. Life is harder, for example, in my own country. The Irish people had no say in the events that led to the blocking of
0: the canal. But now that the canal is blocked... They have to pay. The Suez Crisis. And so the news service was expanding, but ironically, one of the greatest boosts to the Radio Aaron news service was the national newspaper strike of 1952. Now, the only national news service available was that from Radio Erin.
8: This was uh, very largely the case. The case. It, it's, it made a very big difference.
0: Radio Aaron's
4: morning news bulletins, which began during the newspaper strike, have come to stay. So every weekday now for the past two months... A new voice has been heard at Irish breakfast tables, that of 25-year-old Dennis Brennan, Rathgar Dublin, the announcer. His wife is radio actress Daphne Caddell. They have two children, Barbara, who is two years, and Catherine, nine months. An early morning news announcer's biggest difficulty?
0: Getting up, Mr Brennan says. A further development of the 1950s was the topical talk after the one hundred thirty news, an attempt to explore some of the background behind the news. Maxwell Sweeney. This summer,
4: many thousands of tourists will travel through the Brenner Pass on their way south into Italy. On the way up the Austrian side, they may see slogans painted on walls, such as Freiheit für Südtirol, meaning Freedom for South Tyrol, and pass on through the Austrian and Italian customs checks into territory, which has been a sore spot of Europe for nearly 50 years. This was the type of thing that we were doing each day, Monday to Friday, after the news at one30 Topical talk was scheduled for 1.40 and it had to be well off the air at 1.45 because uh, the advertisers paid for the rest of the time.
0: And the advertisers were to hold on to that time after the news until the arrival of news features in the late 1960s. But still in the 50s and there were times when the presentation of news was more important and more controversial than its content. There Shell a gallery in London. The voice of Patrick Begley, or rather his accent, and this accent was at the centre of a major public controversy in the early nineteen fifties. The voice was criticized in the Doyle as being un Irish and was described by one critic as being unracy of the soil.
8: The Doyle has been discussing the budget.
0: But as we leave the nineteen fifties, there was still one fact which the Radio Air Newsroom had to always keep in mind, news editor Michael Lawler.
8: Uh, the Minister for Post and Telegraphs was responsible. And the man that called me up most was the late Mr. Ruskin Childers. But he was uh, uh, had a dedicated interest in broadcasting. He was very anxious to free it from as much as he could. But uh, he was a very excitable type. And I, I used to, at all hours of the day or night, I would sometimes find myself on the phone
0: to him. And so, into the 1960s, the coming of television, the setting up of the RTE Authority and with it, a greatly enlarged newsroom to cater for both radio and television. And all the while, too, improvements in technology, helping to extend the range and scope of news broadcasting. Former Director-General T.P. Hardiman.
10: The same sort of technology that has allowed the multiplication of transistors has, of course, helped the the broadcaster, helped the programme maker, helped the journalist, in the case of news and information broadcasting, to be there as the event happens and to get his information to get the facts to get the background to the facts back to the studio and onto transmission in very little time
12: the the potential audience of course that that one has through broadcasting is very high and, and broadcast news in particular uh, has a very high rating in terms of authenticity former deputy director general john irvin and then uh, broadcasting's capacity of course
0: to bring news almost as it happens adds greatly to its strength <laughs> The exploding trauma of Northern Ireland.
9: <laughs> Derry, Guddy
0: Sunday, 1972. And just as the Second World War had tested the BBC's news resources and helped their development, so now did the task of covering the Northern Ireland story test RTE and force on it new and unexpected challenges. <laughs> Head of News, nineteen sixty six seventy five, Jim McGuinness.
12: Well, it caught us unprepared in the sense that Ireland, which had been, thank goodness, a relatively quiet country for years, suddenly found itself uh, at the eye of a world news hurricane. And uh, events were happening not just every week, but every day and two or three times a day that would have been shattering events had they been happening once a month or once every six weeks, a few short months before these before the North erupted. And when the North erupted, we had, in effect, a, a sort of a mini-Vietnam in Belfast and Derry and in other areas of the North.
0: And was the lack of preparation, was it something which was just technical in terms of people, or was it also in the attitudes of those who were covering the North? Well,
12: uh, when, in 1966, when I became head of news, we didn't, RTE did not have an office in the north of Ireland. Uh, I myself uh, felt that RTE should have had an office there. Uh, as you probably know, I'm from Derry, but I don't think my feeling that there sh- we should have an office in Belfast owed anything to the fact that I was from Derry. It owed something to the fact that as a journalist, I had—I knew each Dublin newspaper had its office in Belfast. You didn't have to be from any particular segment of the country to know that an outlet in Belfast for RTE News was a very natural thing and indeed a very essential thing for it to have.
0: Did the fact that you were a northerner, did, did this... Uh, affect your interpretation or the coverage given to the events in the North during that period?
12: No, I have been not too committed to the belief that some people have that uh, you need to be from Kerry to know what's going on in Kerry or you need to be from Galway to know what's going on in Galway. This is an extremely small country and while admittedly aspects of its politics and history are extremely complicated uh, this uh, idea of regionalisation in terms of comprehension is always something that I would have rejected.
0: Present Head of News, Wesley Boyd.
9: I've heard news being defined as a as a lighthouse. It, it can illuminate part of the scene for some of the time. It can't, of course, illuminate all of the scene for all of the time. So it, it must be straightforward. It must, of course, be accurate. It must be impartial, it must be objective, it must be balanced. But uh, here in RT, on radio we try to bring news as quickly as possible, but we don't allow speed to interfere with accuracy. Uh, I think the public have a right, from their national broadcasting organisation, a right to know that what they're hearing is true and balanced and impartial. And I think we succeed in uh, giving the public a service like that.
0: How about the uh, section in the Broadcasting Review Committee on Northern Ireland that the uh, RTE coverage uh, had elements of bias, distortion and sensationalism?
9: The Broadcasting Review Committee uh, made that allegation in its report published in 1974. Uh, I read uh, that particular section carefully. I could not find one line of evidence to support that allegation. And... uh, My predecessor, Jim McGuinness, gave a very reasoned reply to uh, his staff here after that allegation was made and uh, he also pointed to the fact that no evidence was produced in support of this very, very serious allegation but no evidence was produced in support of that at all. I think perhaps what the review committee was mixing up was a change of attitudes. In the early days, uh, in the 68, 69 days, there was, in my opinion too much emotional content in our broadcast from the north of Ireland and indeed a tendency to decide with one side only, with the nationalist Catholic side uh, Now I think over the years we developed a fair balance where we recognised that there was another side to the story but that other side was also given and quite often uh, we are still accused of being biased one way or the other we're either uh, pro-Catholic or we're the of the loyalist. We're pro-IRA or we're anti-IRA. These allegations are made all the time uh, about us.
0: But wouldn't what you've said really bear out the uh, allegation that there was a bias in the early stages of coverage?
9: There may have been. Looking at it from today back to 1968-69, there may have been a bias. But let's remember that attitudes generally have changed since 1968 and 69 in this particular part of the country.
0: And Jimmy Guinness...
12: Because I don't think that reporters can be objective in in the way that I understand the word, therefore if somebody said our reporting was not objective, I would have to say, yes, I agree with that. But I would say if it wasn't objective, it was, so far as it lay within the power of the people reporting, fair and impartial. Uh, of course there would be instances Uh, when people in the newsroom, including, I'm sure, myself, made errors of judgment uh, in an extremely complex and demanding situation, it would be quite extraordinary if that didn't happen. My own view is that, that comparatively few errors of judgment were made.
0: But if politics and controversy often surrounded the news service in the 1960s and 70s, controversies over Section 31 and the government directive, the sacking of the RTE authority... There were also important developments, more specialist correspondence, permanent staff in capitals abroad, better worldwide link-ups, and most of all, the beginning of serious investigative and background journalism with the establishment and growth of the News Features Department. It's one o'clock
4: and this is Michael Heaney and Conor Brady here in Dublin with another edition of This Week. And this week, with deadlock over a national wage agreement, we ask, is the Cabinet split over statutory controls?
0: Labour whip Barry Desmond says he favours a moderate pay increase in 1976... And news features editor Mike Burns. I think that uh, traditionally news had been
4: reported in
0: uh, a script form. Uh, The sub-editors had prepared the news of the day. It had been handed down to a newsreader who had read them like tablets of stone. Suddenly, uh, the then-director-general Tom Hardiman and the then-head of news Jim McGuinness... Uh, decided that uh, news perhaps should follow a different pattern, a pattern then being established by the BBC in the form of The World at One. I think that the man who brought about the greatest change in radio and possibly in Irish broadcasting was Jim McGuinness, the former head of news. Why? I think that he appreciated that news was something uh, much more different than just uh, a simple uh, paragraph in a news bulletin. I think he uh, approached on the basis that one should find out what was the reason for the paragraph, what was the story behind the paragraph, where the story would end at some time in the future.